science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. Well, welcome, everyone. Today, uh, let me start out by reflecting on a little bit of uh, history. As most of you know, I grew up in, in Hungary, and uh, that was uh, <laughs> that was a few years ago. Anyway, of course, there was no internet at that time. Uh, at first, we didn't really even have a, a telephone. I remember when the telephone was installed. We did have an ice box, which was literally an ice box. Uh, the ice man came, and you know, with the ice pick, he would put the block of ice into the back of this little uh, refrigerator thing, the ice box. Uh, I actually didn't know that television existed until we came to Canada, and that was, uh, I guess, very early 1957 when I first saw my the television. Now, we had a radio in Hungary, of course, uh, and uh, we listened to that all the time, just like, you know, now we would watch TV at night. Then in those days, we listened to the radio. And it's interesting, some of the things that you remember. Uh, I remember hearing the announcement of Stalin's death. I didn't know what to make of it. I mean, of course, I was very young then. I didn't know anything about the, the politics. I, you know, I, I didn't know at that time, you know, what an evil man Stalin was. Uh, but I remember listening to the announcement of his death on the radio, and and then they were playing a funeral dirge uh, for days uh, after on the radio. And then one of my uh, really uh, most interesting memories was 1954, when we were listening to the World Cup final between Germany and Hungary, and uh, that was being uh, uh, broadcast on radio live from uh, Switzerland, from Bern, I, I think it was. And uh, at that time, uh, Hungary was the, the top team in, in the world in, in, in soccer. I mean, they hadn't lost in I don't know how many games. And they had the uh, most famous uh, player in the world at the time, which, which was Ferenc Pushkash. And, um, I mean, he is still revered the um, in, in, um, in Europe. The trophy for uh, most goals scored in a year by any European team, that trophy is the Pushkash uh, the trophy. And I remember listening to that game, and uh, uh, Hungary was uh, uh, up uh, early in the game. They were actually up, uh, I think it was uh, 2-0. And then uh, Pushkash was injured, supposedly, as the story went, deliberately kicked by a German. And uh, they ended up losing the game, which was a huge uh, shock at, at that time. Anyway, so, you know, I remember that. But why why am I telling you all of this? Because, you know, the question was, if, you know, we didn't have computers, we didn't have TV, uh, we didn't have radio, but, you know, what else was there to do in the evenings? Well, I read books. And uh, some, I, I think, played a, a role in formulating my uh, the interest that I have today. Uh, especially Jules Verne was one of my favorites then and is one of my favorites now. And the first Jules Verne book I ever read, Jules Verne, of course, was French and he was a, a famous writer of, of science fiction stories, was The Mysterious Island. 
and it told the story of how a group of Northerners captured by Confederates during the Civil War escaped by hijacking a balloon and how they became marooned on a deserted island somewhere in the South Pacific. They were stranded there, and uh, of course they had to establish a colony by themselves, and they had to use their wits. Now, one of the castaways, Cyrus Smith, was an engineer, and he was kind of, what can I tell you, like a forerunner of MacGyver, the TV hero whose encyclopedic knowledge of science helped him solve all kinds of, of, of problems by making use of whatever ordinary materials were available. So in the book, guided by Smith's uh, profound practical knowledge of botany, geology, physics, and chemistry, I mean, especially chemistry, the colonists fabricated cooking pots and bricks, and they even managed to smelt iron, and they designed a primitive telegraph system on the island. Now, much to their surprise, as they run into problems, mysterious solutions appear. A box filled with weapons and tools inexplicable materializes. Tablets of quinine magically turn up when malaria strikes, and a horde of invading pirates end up dead without any apparent wounds. With no logical explanation apparent, it seems that some benevolent deity is looking out for the colonists' welfare. In the end, though, the mystery of the mysterious island is solved. The island turns out to be the hideout of Captain Nemo, scientific genius who lives in a grotto aboard his submarine, the Nautilus. It was he who had been the settler's mysterious benefactor. All of the events that had been so puzzling now turn out to have a down-to-earth explanation. Now, at that young age, I didn't understand all of the scientific details described in the book. But a couple of points struck home. Scientific ingenuity can solve a lot of problems, and phenomena that at first seem paranormal can turn out to be quite mundane as facts come to light. One of the problems the colonists faced was to find a source of water. Well, with his knowledge of geology, the engineer locates an underground lake. Unfortunately, it is inaccessible an explosive would be needed to blast apart the rocks blocking the path to the water. But wouldn't you know it, Smith comes up with an idea. What about making some nitroglycerin? <laughs> now, that was interesting for me because I think it was my first exposure to chemistry. Although, of course, I, I was too young then to follow Verne's description of the process of making nitroglycerin. I do know that subsequently my interest perked every time I ran across that term. When I heard that The Wager of Fear, an adventure film about the difficulty of transporting the compound, would be playing in our local cinema, I begged my parents to take me. Yeah, we movies we had. <laughs> Later, I would often write about nitroglycerin, excellent example how a chemical can be used either to the benefit or the detriment of mankind. Well, you know what? Recently, I reread The Mysterious Island. And now, with my current understanding of, of chemistry, which is significantly more than back in the late 1950s, I now marvel at Jules Verne's classic more than ever. His description of Smith's production of nitroglycerin is brilliant and scientifically plausible. The key chemicals needed are glycerin and nitric acid and Smith manages to make both. 
The colonist's dog is attacked by a dugong, a manatee-like marine creature, and an underwater struggle ensues with the dog being saved by the mysterious hand. Later on, we learn it was Captain Nemo's hand, kills the dugong. The fatty animal is just what is needed to make glycerin. Any fat treated with soda, that is with sodium carbonate, yields glycerin and also yields soap. One of the oldest known chemical processes. But where was he going to get sodium carbonate? Well, Smith knew it could be extracted from ashes left when seaweed burns, which is just what he did. And then he needed some nitric acid. Well, you can made, make that by treating potassium nitrate, which is saltpeter, with sulfuric acid. There was plenty of bird poop on the island. That's a good source of saltpeter. And fool's gold, or iron sulfide, was abundant. Well, it turns out that if you heat iron sulfide, it turns into iron sulfate, and the solution of which, when distilled, yields sulfuric acid. When it came to making a still, Smith's knowledge of pottery came in handy. The clever engineer reacted the glycerin with nitric acid and required and produced the, the required nitroglycerin. So, you know, that was the book that, you know, first stimulated my interest in science and sparked my passion also for solving mysteries. And, you know, now I, I realize that it was more drenched in chemistry than, of course, that I recognized that at that time. I mean, Jules Verne was, was you know, absolutely brilliant uh, the way that, that he foresaw the future. Um, his classic, From the Earth to the Moon, and, uh, you know, Around the Moon, which uh, uh, is really the story of, of, you know, of essentially sending a, a space capsule to the moon. Now, it wasn't a rocket the way that we would, uh, of course, do it today. It was a projectile launched from a giant cannon built into the ground in, in Florida. But the way that Verne describes all the calculations that were necessary to know when that projectile had to be fired to meet up with the moon. Uh, those were all extremely accurate calculations. And uh, he also recognized that, of course, they would need some sort of air, oxygen, to be supplied in the projectile on the way to the moon. And he knew how to do that. He had an apparatus in the projectile that he described, which uh, used some potassium chlorate. Now, when you heat potassium chlorate, it decomposes to yield oxygen. So he had this setup where an amount of potassium chlorate was, was taken along on, on the trip, and some of it would be slowly heated to release oxygen. But Verne also knew that respiration releases carbon dioxide which had to be removed from the capsule. And he knew how to do that as well. Potassium hydroxide will absorb carbon dioxide from the air. And he had an elaborate setup for that. So yeah, Jules Verne, in, in a sense, got me going in chemistry. I would suggest go to the library, take out the mysterious island, take out from the earth to the moon, you will enjoy it. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We'll be right back. 
Life's Everyday Mystery Solved, The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Pain. Probably nothing can be worse than that. You know, when someone is in pain, every other concern fades into the background. The sole focus becomes alleviating the suffering. And that, of course, is why pain-relieving medications are so prized. Unfortunately, the most potent ones, the opiates, come with a, a good deal of baggage. The side effects can include confusion, constipation, depression of respiration. Then, of course, there's the potential for addiction. So any hint of a discovery of a non-opiate painkiller causes excitement in the pharmaceutical community. It was back in 1974 that National Institute of Health researcher John Daly took an interest in the toxins secreted by the small Ecuadorian tree frog, Epipedopodes tricolor. Natives were known to tip their blow darts or arrows with a poison by rubbing them across the frog's back. Poison dart frogs, as they have come to be known, synthesize potent toxins from components in their diet, possibly insects, and they use these to protect themselves from predators. A single lick is enough to teach a predator a very bitter lesson. But Daly wondered what sort of compounds the frogs produced and whether they might have some use in medicine. He managed to isolate one specific compound, christened it epibatidine, and discovered that in tiny doses, it was very effective as a painkiller. In fact, in mice, it was 200 times more potent than morphine. How are such numbers arrived at? Such determinations are not as difficult as one might think. Mice, for example, flick their tail in a specific fashion when treated with opiates. This is known as the Straub tail response. The tail flicking activity is determined by the dose of the opiate administered. So if the same type of activity is seen in response to a dose of a test drug that is one two hundredth of a dose of morphine, the drug is said to be 200 times more active. Another test used is perhaps more disturbing. Mice are put on a hot plate, and the time it takes for them to jump off is measured. An effective painkiller will lengthen the time. Epibatidine was shown by such tests to be more potent than morphine. But what caused further excitement was that the painkilling effect persisted in the presence of naloxone. That's an opiate antagonist. What does that mean? An opiate antagonist is a molecule that blocks the action of opiates. Opiates work by fitting into specific receptors on the surface of cells. And uh, the you know analogy that we often use here is that of a lock and key. So morphine would be the, the key, the morphine, morphine receptor is the lock. When the molecule fits the receptor, it unleashes some sort of activity in the cell, which uh, triggers nervous system activity and, and pain, pain relief. So this was very interesting since the painkilling effect persisted in the presence of, of naloxone, an opiate antagonist, which, which meant that it wasn't acting as an opiate, and therefore it might not have an addictive potential. 
because that really is the holy grail when you're looking for drugs to alleviate pain. You want the pain alleviated, but you don't want to take a chance of, of addiction. But Daly's research was hampered by restrictions on the collection of the frogs, which were deemed to be endangered. It wasn't until the 1990s that nuclear magnetic resonance technology, that is NMR technology, had developed to the extent that the molecular structure of epipatidine could be determined from the tiny amounts of the compounds that Daly had collected. Indeed, epibatidine turned out not to be an opiate. Rather, its molecular structure resembled nicotine. It was also one of the rare naturally occurring organic compounds that contained chlorine in its structure. Epibatidine's painkilling activity was related to its ability to activate what are known as nicotinic acetylcholine receptors on nerve cells. Unfortunately, epibatidine in slightly higher doses also activates muscarinic acetylcholine receptors causing paralysis and death. In other words, we would say that the therapeutic window of epipatidine is very narrow. You have to get the dose exactly right to have a painkilling effect without putting the patient at risk. But once epipatidine structure had been determined, chemists went to work on devising synthetic routes for its production. No longer was there any need to disturb the endangered tree frogs. Alas, the initial hope for epipatidine becoming a non-additive painkiller quickly faded. It turned out the compound was just too toxic. You just couldn't get the dose right. Indeed, it turned out to be more toxic than dioxin, commonly regarded as the most toxic synthetic compound ever encountered. The therapeutic dose of epipatidine was just too close to the toxic dose for comfort. Although it was a terrific painkiller, it was too likely to kill the patient. But hope is not all lost. As is uh, common practice, pharmaceutical chemists have synthesized a number of molecules closely related to epibatidine with hopes of finding one with a better safety profile. Well, something may yet come out of that, but you know, this is, this is the, the challenge that still faces researchers today whenever you're dealing with pain, is how to minimize the side effects of the, of the pain relieving medication. And here we're, you know, we're not only talking about opiates. I mean, there are other painkillers out there, you know, the aspirin, of course, and other non-steroidal uh, anti-inflammatory compounds. But even those come with some baggage. You know, in the case of, of aspirin, which has turned out to be one of the most useful drugs in the world, but it is not without problems because aspirin has an anticoagulant effect. And whenever you're taking aspirin, you're also taking a chance that it's going to cause some sort of, of bleeding. So it's always a question of weighing the risks against the benefits. And you know, it, it used to be that doctors would routinely recommend, uh, especially in, in uh, aging men and men who had pre-existing heart conditions, to take uh, a small dose of aspirin on a regular basis. Well, this is is this advice is is no longer. Uh, really in, in vogue, except where it's really indicated where there, there is a condition that, that would uh, make the benefits outweigh uh, the risks, uh, because there is a risk of, of, uh, of bleeding. 
So whatever painkiller there is out there, even from the simple over-the-counter ones to the most serious ones, you know, like like uh, the opiates, uh, there's always the problem of the uh, of the side effect. And in the case of opiates, obviously addiction. And uh, as you know, opiate addiction is a huge scourge. And uh, you know, there there are arguments that opiates are just too easily prescribed by doctors, and uh, people are becoming addicted when you know, when the drug is really not uh, indicated. But when it is indicated, when suffering is, when someone is suffering from uh, diseases like, you know, end-stage cancer, which are very, very painful, I mean, morphine can be a, a godsend. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We'll check uh, CTV News and be right back. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. You know, very often these days, the operative word in terms of disease is prevention. Uh, obviously, it is much better to prevent something than to have to treat it once the disease sets in. And uh, there is actually a magazine called Prevention, which obviously plays on this idea. And historically, I've not been a great fan of, of this magazine. Uh, but I'll admit that uh, recently it has improved somewhat. But basically, it is aimed at promoting its advertisers and products. You know, the, the magazine is full of ads. And the articles tend to deal with supplements that are advertised in the magazine. Books like uh, Doctor's Book of Healing Foods are mushrooming these days. Very like like the stuff that you see in in Prevention magazine. Why? Because of seductive message that the right diet can perform miracles and that foods can act as drug free cures. Now that message, of course, is not new. Over two thousand years ago, Hippocrates tantalized people with his dictum of "Let thy food be thy medicine." Although I have to tell you that <laughs> we quote this, and and you know I I myself often quote that in in lectures. The fact is that when you try to search his own writings, that is the writings of Hippocrates, there's no mention of him ever saying anything like that. Of course, that that doesn't mean he didn't say it, uh, but uh, there's no recorded evidence. But he could have said it, and Hippocrates was a pretty bright guy, and he may very well have noted that food was uh, good at preventing disease. So in any case, whether he said it or not, it was an insightful remark, calling attention to the relation between food and health, and it played well at that time, for sure, given that there was no, there's really no effective medicine to be had. With the vast amount of research that has accumulated since that time, mostly, of course, within the last you know, 50 to 70 years, it is way too simple-minded to suggest that there are healing foods for almost any condition. I mean, that just isn't true. The notion that Mother Nature has placed in her nutritional garden of cures every food you need to get well is absurd, as is the statement that, quote, your immune system is the greatest pharmacist ever created and knows how to make more than 100 billion types of medicines called antibodies to attack just about any unwanted germ, virus, or renegade cell that wants to harm you. Now, that, I mean, we are seeing these kind of, 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 of uh, assertions routinely these days. 
as of course we battle the the coronavirus and there are all kinds of of, of suggestions on on how to do this anyway uh, silliness like this you know a, 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 about 100 billion types of medicines called antibodies i mean this is prompt, prompted by prevention's overall philosophy that nature provides cures for all diseases and that is again just nonsense what the magazine and the related book uh, offer is, are scientific molehills that they build into mountains. But climbing those mountains will not get you anywhere. One headline uh, I came across asked the intriguing question, to live longer, eat pizza? Question mark. The intended answer, of course, is yes. Why? because as they explain, the tomato sauce and pizza is loaded with one of mother nature's most powerful disease-fighting compounds, lycopene, along with a healthy dose of vitamin C. Studies show this combination can dramatically reduce your risk of cancer and heart disease. Really? I'd like to see those studies. Yes, you can dredge up some studies showing that lycopene has an antioxidant effect, and that antioxidants have some theoretical benefit. That benefit is debatable. But in any case, there are no studies that show pizza, no matter with what topping, reduces cancer or heart disease risk. Now, I like pizza as much as anyone. I wouldn't eat it every day. Uh, pizza is loaded with, with uh, salty cheese. And uh, of course, there's salt and sugar in the dough uh, as well. And then of course, if you put pepperoni on, on top, then you have to contend with the nitrites that in the body can be converted to, to nitrosamines. In any case, the word cancer, of course, is terrifying. So headline like, here we go again, to help prevent cancer, eat more berries. That certainly gets your attention. What smidgen of evidence did they dig up to prompt that. The fact that berries contain compounds such as ellagic acid and a host of other polyphenols that in the laboratory interfere with cancer cells' ability to multiply. This has no clinical relevance. There are hundreds and hundreds of compounds that can do this, including some pesticides and some drain cleaners. The only way to show that berries can prevent cancer is by organizing a long-term trial where the only difference between the experimental and control groups is the amount of berries they eat. Of course, there never has been such a trial, never will be. Yes, berries should be featured in the diet, but there's no need to make unsubstantiated claims. But there's also a somewhat hidden but concerning message about compounds in berries. They say, and unlike man-made cancer-fighting agent, these compounds are abundant in many of your favorite foods in just the right amounts you need and are 100% good for you with 0% side effects. Is that a potential dangerous dig at chemotherapy? Yes, it is. I mean, to suggesting that uh, there are foods that, that can replace chemotherapy, that's just nonsense. Yes, it is true that there are foods that may play a role in preventing disease, but uh, to suggest that they, they can replace chemotherapy is really irresponsible. Here's another headline. 
Just one small serving of this delicious miracle food gives you more protection against cancer than 60 cups of broccoli. And just where is the evidence that broccoli prevents cancer? There isn't any. There are some interesting studies about sulforaphane, a compound released from broccoli on cooking or on chewing, and its effects on cancer cells, but there's no evidence that eating broccoli prevents cancer in people. The miracle food they talk about happens to be flaxseed. It is high in fiber and certainly can be effective against constipation. But touting it as a miracle food, well, that's just ridiculous. Then there is the six cherry remedy for gout. What is the evidence provided? Back in the 1950s, a Texas doctor was so crippled by a gouty big toe, he was forced to use a wheelchair. He reported in a Texas medical journal that a diet including six cherries a day had him up and walking. This is laughable, but at least not dangerous. But a claim that blood pressure can be reduced dramatically just by eating celery can goad people into trying this foolhardy experiment. Well, perhaps this is where uh, the guy, Anthony William, who calls himself the medical medium, maybe this is where he first heard about celery juice way back from Prevention Magazine. And he has picked up that message and now is on the New York Times bestseller list selling his book about the miracles of celery juice. No, you cannot prevent all diseases by food, but food can play a role in health. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll be right back. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Money, they say, is the root of all evil. Who's the they? Those who have no money. Well, I don't know about money being evil, but paper money can be a problem for some. For starters, it can spread bacteria. A study of uh, US $1 bills showed that many were contaminated with bacteria, such as Staphylococcus aureus and Klebsiella pneumoniae, which can cause infections in healthy people. Of course, just because the bacteria are there does not mean that they can spread disease, but the potential is there. Money laundering is not the answer, but washing hands often reduces the risk of getting sick from money. Now, quite aside from bacteria, Money can make some people sick. Luckily, it's a rarity. We're talking about allergic reactions. Here's a case in point. Australia introduced plastic bag totes made of acrylates. And they, of course, the reason they did that is to reduce the rate at which uh, paper bills have to be replaced, which is generally quite, quite often, and it's a lot of expense. Soon after these new notes appeared, two men presented at a dermatology clinic with dermatitis coinciding with the location of back thoughts in their pockets. And uh, indeed, patch testing confirmed allergic contact dermatitis. Even more interesting is the case of a German cashier who developed eczema of the hands after handling banknotes. Not all banknotes, only 50 Deutschmark notes. 
patch testing revealed the man was sensitive to 4-phenylindiamine and Bismarck-Brown, two of the commonly used dyes. The German men declined to discuss what dyes are used in paper money, but when an allergist tested the patient, it was clear he reacted only to the 50 Deutschmark note, and that's brown. So Bismarck Brown is a good guess as the culprit. Color, of course, is named after former Chancellor of Germany, Bismarck. And uh, a final curiosity. Bismarck Brown is a dye can be used by microbiologists to stain mast cells so they can be readily seen through a microscope. Mast cells are a type of white blood cell and uh, these are involved in allergic reactions. Now, in Canada, of course, we've also introduced uh, plastic money, uh, but I've not heard of uh, any reaction uh, to it here. Uh, I think our plastic is, is polypropylene, and uh, polypropylene doesn't cause uh, allergic reactions. Uh, of course, these days, we are handling less and less money, aren't we? I, I don't even know the last time I, I used cash. I mean, these these days you just use your credit card everywhere. I mean, people you know buy gum using uh, a credit card. Well, there's something else that sticks to money. You know what? Cocaine. Much of our paper currency has residues of this drug because of the tradition of snorting it through rolled up bills. In fact, U.S. authorities have been able to track cocaine use by monitoring the amount found on bills. There's a lot more cocaine on money in Miami than in Denver, Colorado, for example. The real issue with cocaine and money, though, is the amount spent on the drug. Just imagine how much better off our society would be if the money spent on substance abuse were put to, um, to better use. Now, at one time, you may know that, that cocaine was used as a drug. If you go back to the 1800s, physicians in their bags would routinely carry cocaine uh, for injection, and it was used to, to pet people up. You know, if someone was in the doldrums, they get an injection of cocaine, and of course, they would feel better. In fact, uh, of all people, Sigmund Freud, the so-called father of psychiatry, was very much into cocaine. He even wrote a whole treatise on, on coca and uh, sang its praises. Cocaine, of course, comes from the coca plant, uh, which grows mostly in, in South America. And uh, chewing the leaves of the plant will extract small amounts of cocaine, very small amounts because cocaine itself is, is not very soluble in water. So these uh, natives in South America who would you know, uh, chew coca leaves all day in order to brighten up their lives really weren't getting an overdose of, of cocaine. They were getting small amounts of, of, of cocaine, but enough to, to uh, relieve some of their uh, anxiety. Uh, but uh, cocaine obviously has a downside. Although it isn't physically addictive like, like morphine, that is, you know, we, you don't have withdrawal symptoms if you stop using it, but it is very strongly psychologically addictive. People just like it so much that if you take it away from them, they get uh, very, very angry. And unfortunately, there are significant um, problems with cocaine as well, I mean, uh, medical problems. In some people, it causes a condition known as formication. 
Now, don't get me wrong, formication with an M, not with an N. So what is formication? It's the, the belief that some sort of insect is crawling over or just under your skin. And sometimes uh, people who are uh, high on cocaine will have this, this image of the, the bugs crawling all over them to the extent that they will scratch and claw mostly at their forehead, trying to get out these bugs, injuring themselves in, in the process. Well, today, uh, cocaine is, is not very much used uh, as a medicine, although it is still, in rare cases, used as a local anesthetic for some surgery in the nose and uh, in, in the eyes. Uh, but, uh, you know, we're past the days when it was sold over the counter in pharmacies uh, as it was in the late 1800s, early 1900s, as a local anesthetic. You could buy a, a cream formulated with cocaine that you would rub on your gums in, uh, in case you had a toothache. That's gone. And of course, also a, a wine called Van Mariani, very popular in Europe because it contained wine, uh, contained cocaine. That's no longer with us. And how about Coca-Cola? Well, although some of the taste came from the coca plant, it never had enough cocaine in it to cause any kind of an effect. And that's it. We have run smack out of time. You've been listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. And cadmium and calcium and chromium and curium. There's sulfur, californium, and fermium, berkelium, and also mendelevium, einsteinium, nobelium, and argon, kryptonium, radon, xenon, zinc, and rhodium, and chlorine, carbon, cobalt, copper, tungsten, tin, and sodium. These are the only ones of which the news has come to Harvard. And there may be many others, but they haven't been discovered. Uh,